doing an interview style podcast can be somewhat dangerous today. There's actually two elements of danger bottled up in doing this style show. But first, a quick point about stand-up comedy. Ever hear two stand-up comedians talk about what it takes to be a stand-up comedian? I adore that stuff. I look for it every chance I get, and I just get lost in two comedians chatting about the craft. It's not that I want to hear them be funny when I watch them talk about their jobs, though I'm obviously a huge comedy fan. It's just that I'm fascinated by people who describe a craft that honestly looks effortless when they execute it, but they describe it in such detail. I love this idea that the things people do in their work that seem natural, like it comes easy to them, it actually doesn't. It's conscious, it's practiced, it's controlled. I love that fact because it means we, you and me, can also master that same craft, whatever we admire, if we're conscious about it, if we practice, if we exert the effort needed to try and control and develop our skills. This perfectly sums up the skill of interviewing someone on a podcast. It looks so effortless when we hear the greats, yet for those great interviewers, it's been learned and honed. So that's the first danger. Because it seems effortless to those who master the craft that we admire, marketers and executives just assume that it'll come naturally to them. I mean, nobody has talker's block, and everybody has asked questions of other people, so they just fire up a microphone and assume they'll be good. Or maybe they actually wish they could make something more complex in the edit with a lot of post-production narration and sound design and all that good stuff, but since they lack the time, resource, knowledge, or some combination therein, they default to making just an interview show as a quote-unquote time saver. Why? Because interviews are quote-unquote easier. The problem is, they're not. It's easier to do an interview, sure, than it is to do a narrative-style podcast, but it's so hard to be so good at an interview that your listeners actually enjoy it. That's danger number one. This stuff is learned. It's hard to be good. Danger number two is that if we don't embrace that interviewing is actually a skill, we end up churning out more commodity shows. You can replace the name of all those commodity podcasts with guest experts with the same name for the show. Take out their name and just call it this, Talking Topics with Experts. Today, how to avoid falling victim to these dangers. We learn the craft of amazing interview technique from one of the legends of this niche who just celebrated a jaw-dropping milestone with one hell of an episode. And that is the episode we're going to play some clips from. All that today, plus some catharsis, some philosophizing, if you will, about what we do. I think sometimes we just need to ditch the tactics and get deep and realize that, oh, wait, others, even the most successful people, even the legend we're going to talk to today, yeah, we all feel the same way. This is Three Clips. Hey there, I'm Jay Akunzo, and on Three Clips, we make sense of great podcasts a few little pieces at a time. It's a show about shows for marketers who make shows. Meta, I know. We are the official podcast of marketingshowrunners.com. And at MSR, we serve marketers who want to find and share their voices, make a difference, and shift the culture for the better. We believe a show is the best, most impactful vehicle for doing that. And we want to help you make your audience's favorite show so you can be their favorite brand. If you want to keep up with all our content, including some insights that we publish nowhere else, join our free monthly newsletter, MSR Monthly. You'll be in good company with subscribers who get the email 
on the last Friday of every month, people from Amazon Prime Video, the New York Times, the BBC, MailChimp, Adobe, Salesforce, Shopify, Zendesk, and thousands of startups and small businesses. To subscribe, go to marketingshowrunners.com or check your show notes for a link. All right, today, two legends battle it out for podcast supremacy. Two hosts enter, one leaves. I mean, I mean, not really, but the episode we deconstructed today does feature two of the most prolific content creators, two people who host podcasts that are wildly popular and I think wildly powerful, and two people that I personally learn from every week. Today, we're joined by Mitch Joel, a keynote speaker, an author, and the host of the show, Six Pixels of Separation. Together, we break down three pivotal moments in Mitch's 700th episode. That's right, his 700th episode. He achieved this milestone earlier this year, and his guest was the one and only Seth Godin. So if you think you've heard Seth Godin interviewed before, well, guess again, because you've never heard the stuff that he says on Mitch's show. And that's the power of a great interview, in part. You might have heard that guest elsewhere, but not like this. You've never heard him quite the same way you've heard them on this show. That's what you should be able to say if you're great at interviewing. So after the break, we're going to deconstruct Mitch's approach using this episode. And we begin with a section that I had planned out all nice and neat in theory, which then gets totally derailed. It's kind of a meta lesson that we can all learn from from my mistakes as we dive into Mitch's show after that section. That's all coming up after this quick break. Stay with me. Today's episode is sponsored by Contently and their content strategy course for the creatively driven content marketer. Here's the deal. Most of us spend our time as creators thinking that we're strangers in a strange land here in marketing. But if we're actually willing to learn the strategy side, the part that allows us to have in-depth conversations with CMOs and demand gen marketers and all kinds of teammates, if we had those conversations, if we had those skills and that knowledge, we would be unstoppable as creators. Marrying the creative and the strategic, the content and the marketing, that is powerful stuff. Contently has put together one of the world's best, I think most hilarious and also most insightful courses on mastering that stuff. And you can support our show by signing up. Go to contently.com slash three clips, the number three, the word clips, and you can go for the knowledge, but stay for the moments like their editor dressing up as Batman or their head of marketing, Joe, acting like a robot. It's contently.com slash three clips to both support our show and become a master of this entire domain. Now, let's hear my conversation with Mitch, including the three clips that we pulled out to deconstruct to better understand his podcast, Six Pixels of Separation, so we can all become master interviewers. Okay, so if you had to pitch your show like to a Hollywood studio, they actually call that the show cross. (laughs) How would you describe Six Pixels of Separation? All right, I'd say it's like Howard Stern, but it's serious and about business, but I'm Canadian, so I could never compare myself to Howard Stern. I actually really like that because and here's why. <laughs> As someone who has sort of like traver I've traversed the podcast world, especially the business podcast world, in like two different planes. Like plane one was as a consumer for years. And the the second plane that I'm on right now is like as a, a teacher, analyst, somebody who's trying to like make sense of this stuff. I gotta say, when someone says I run an interview show, I think we all know what we think is going to happen. It's going to be somebody, you know, you know the type, right? Like you show up, you rattle off the same 10 questions. You're probably talking to the same 10 guests that everybody in your cohort, your competitive set has talked to. 
But when I talk about your show to other people, Mitch, it's very much like, hey, interviews that go really deep where the guest forgets there's a microphone. That's your Howard Stern. I've, I've said Terry Gross. So yeah. I think I think you nailed it. Oh, thanks. OK, I'll, we'll go with that. It's, it's very <laughs> uncomfortable for me to it's very uncomfortable for me to to brag. Very uncomfortable. So 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 there you go. Yeah, I'll brag plenty on this episode on your behalf. Believe me. Okay. So you had just crossed and this is when I reached out to you. Because I said congratulations, and I have an idea that you should come on this show. But you've just crossed an insane milestone, which is 700 episodes of the show. It's always different from the outside looking in. So I'm in the cheap seats. You're on the field here. When you hear 700 episodes, and you think about that long arc of doing the show, what are you picturing? What are some of the snapshots or memories that that stick out the most? Like, what what do you remember from this long arc of time, or is it a blur? Yeah, I'm, I I think I have some sort of mental disorder where time and space become compressed and long at the same time. So like I'll see somebody and they'll be like, hey, I saw you speak at that event in, I don't know, Brazil. And I'll be like, yeah, like that was a long time ago. And they're like, that was last year. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> I have something with that in all time. So like interviews that I feel happened like three years ago happened last week. Uh, things that happened 20 years ago feel like they happened last week. Things that happened last week feel like they happened 20 years ago. So here's the only visualization that I had when you said that, which was when it's somebody who I don't know at all, who I want on the show, and I'm trying to convince them that it would be a good idea to come on the show, I will go back into my archive and just sort of look at guests. And I'm often surprised by having had a guest that I totally forgot I had on, <laughs> or I see things that happened a really long time ago, but it felt like it just happened, which I think is a good sign because it means that it feels really fresh. And then the other thing I think a lot about is something that I talked about in the early days of digital, which obviously because I've been podcasting so long, for those who don't know, I I was blogging in the early days of blogging, I still do, and podcasting from the very early days, is that I really believe that one of my things is legacy. And no matter what I do, I'm very serious about like always showing up, always being on time, being well-prepared, and I don't really look at the monetization of that. I just believe that if I said, yes, I'm going to do it, I'm going to stick to it. So whether it's Six Pixels or my base podcast or the morning hit that I do on radio every week, I don't look at like which one provides more. I, I'm sort of all in. So when I think about you know 700 plus episodes, I just look at it and go, it's almost surprising to me that I have the, like I would think the longest consistently running podcast in, in business for sure. Uh, it's just weird to me. And then the the last part, I guess, is just my my desire for it to be bigger. Obviously, so I'm always just like, why? Why isn't this bigger? So you you never reach that t- that time in your life where you're like, hey, I've I've made it. Yay! It's it's always like, cool. I'm here now. What's next? Or what's what's different? How can I improve? I w- I mean, I wonder. Like, I wonder if Joe Rogan or Mark Marin or don't feel that way. Like, I, I wonder if they're just not. I, I think if I were them, I would be more like, I can't believe how big it is. Or Tim Tim Ferriss. Or, you know. Yeah, this is going on on a total limb here, but I'm going to say that the only people who feel like they have that entitlement, they're typically using the mentality of never satisfied to get to the point that we envy them. But the people that are at that point where they haven't done the work, they're like billionaires' children, right? It's just like they've just been gifted it and then they fade away anyway. So I think right. the people that stay in the zeitgeist, in a, in a niche, in a medium or whatever... The reason they're there is because they have that drive and that hunger, not the kind of hustle porn culture that I think is 
really given a bad name to working hard, but the right. genuine desire to like keep improving and tinkering. And actually that word comes to mind a lot when I think of you, Mitch, which is like this desire to keep tinkering and showing up. Like there's this implicit promise in a lot of your work because it is so consistent over time. And I think there's that trust factor that comes out. If you continually deliver on a promise, that's what yields trust. And then you go one level deeper and you start to connect with the person behind the promise. That's what yields love. And I think you, you kind of get both with a podcast. Yeah, it's, it's funny that you, you struck such a nerve there. I, uh, I have a holding company for business purposes and it's called Tinker. And Tinker was actually the, like the name that I have and I have registered as should I ever have a different business or require a different business. That's the word. I love that word. I feel like I'm best when I'm doing that, whether it's a PowerPoint deck or an, uh, you know, a white screen and I got to put some words down or it's a presentation I got to get ready or it's a, a show that I'm getting ready to take part. And I always look at it like I have to be tinkering with it to get some kind of, of different result or the result that I want, which isn't necessarily a result that I set out for. I had no idea that it was actually a legal holding that you had or a legal yeah. uh, entity. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Funny. Small word. Yeah, small word. I love it. Tinker. So I want to I want to do a quick section called superlatives, where to help people make sense of the show, a people should go listen, but b I think there's a lot you could take away, and we're going to get into one of the fewest or one of the best episodes rather, and one of the few episodes I've ever listened to multiple times on any show. That'll be the show we break down. But before <laughs> we get there. I want to call this section superlatives and just give you five or six different extremes and have you try to make sense of this giant backlog of your show. So you and I have talked offline a lot about the editing because we have different styles. I'll do a lot of editing because that's where I tinker a lot. And you've joked that like you, that's where you're least interested or let's say least intrinsically motivated in podcasting. Oof. Least is a least is a big word. I mean, I would say like <laughs> zero. Like I don't know what I, I don't know how you, you know, in terms of like when you do your show with someone who isn't a podcaster, but I have a document in Evernote called podcasting housekeeping. And it's just basically a list of like, like just things to know, you know, things, little things like obviously please call me Mitch and not Joel because my name is Mitch Joel. But if you don't know me and you call me Joel, it's going to sound bad and I don't want you to sound bad and it's not your fault. It's my fault, but please. But one of them is definitely right aligned with what you were just saying. And it's just that that's the world where I'm like, please understand that this is a one take that consider it live <laughs> because the only reason we're stopping is because the technology craps out on us. Not that I couldn't edit. I don't edit anything. Yeah. I really don't. And I think part of going back to my sort of, I'll call it frustration because I want more and I want more, get more, more audience and stuff like that is I know that that's one of the hurdles. Like I got to get in there and ed edit this thing. And every week I, I sort of wake up with the best of intentions. Like I'll go into audacity and I'll cut it out and I'm like, I just let it go. And um, <laughs> I know that that if people who are listening, who love podcasting are probably like, just get it edited. I, I get it. I just don't. I'm such an old dog that you cannot teach this new trick to have even sending it to someone. I'm like, yeah, no, it's fine. So yes, part of the charm of the show, I'll use the word charm, but part of the reason why I actually liked podcasting over traditional formats was really this ability to have a bit of this sort of garage, pirate radio, warts and all type of thing. The right. challenge with the space is that it became very, very popularized and people do very professionally produce shows. And so... I guess it could be said, and I'm fine with that, that I, you know, I'm sort of behind the times. I, I don't, I mean, this is you coming out and saying that because you're trying to be humble, but I don't think that the show is worse for it. I think that 
two things. One is we think about editing as something you do in post, like or production value is probably the better phrase. We think of production value as, well, that comes from post-production editing after you've recorded. And the more I've surveyed the landscape, not only of marketers making shows or the business category, but just broader podcasts, the more you uncover these shows that are wildly creative, but what they do is they introduce segments to kind of make a logical case. Like we're exploring X topic. So for you to really get X, we're going to have to do these five sections in the same way that you know, you get up on a stage a lot and give a keynote. You have to lead them from where they are to where you want them to go. You can't just leap too far ahead. So I think implicitly, even though you don't have these vocalized sections in your show, you do have production value because it's this product of 700 episodes plus all the other content you've created, plus all the speeches you've given. And so you know, I think don't sell yourself short. There is, I told you I was going to hype you, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think you're crawling under my desk value. right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so look, there's other things that I do that I just find funny. You know, if someone's dog barks because the, the post office shows up, I'll just let the show run. And they'll like be coughing on the way back to the couch or wherever. And then they'll be like, oh, sorry about that. I'm like, yeah, no, it's totally fine. They think I'm editing it out, but I just let it in. And a lot of times, uh, while they're gone, I'll like put on like I'll just be like going do 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 like I'm doing <laughs> elevator music, or I'll just be talking like to the audience or whatever. I, I just like that because like I even when I think about editing and stumbling, I, I don't know. Like I think what makes at least my show somewhat interesting for me is that it's almost like you're eavesdropping on two people having coffee, and I just like that. Yeah. The pauses, I like the the yaz over someone else speaking. Like I actually really like that when when the show's compelling. I don't like it when there's not great production value and it seems like it's almost awkward and uncomfortable. And I do not edit also because if it takes me five more beats to get the thought, I think that not speaking is often a very powerful form of communication. I forget who did this study, and I should probably look it up and, and fix this later, But because like I just claimed publicly I edit it, but I probably <laughs> won't in this case. <laughs> there was some study done about your recall of what people are saying, and if somebody stumbles. So if I were to say, okay, Mitch, so my next question is, um, let's see, let's do this one, and then I give you the question, you'll probably remember it as a listener more than if I just nicely, smoothly dovetail into it because it is that organic way of speaking. But but I do want to be clear, especially but for people listening. that's not. Like, like when I hear you do that, I'm like, oh, that's someone who like doesn't have good conversations. I think you're right at the concept, but that example to me, like I could only bear two of those before I'm like, this person is unprepared. I cannot spend my time here. <laughs> but I think that exact mentality is why when you do something that sounds like it's a conversation, you've put in the work so that it does indeed have a nice experience to it. Whereas most people see what you do and they're like, well, that means I can just fire up a microphone with me and a guest and it'll be worth listening to. And I just mm-hmm. think that fundamentally that's that's just inaccurate. That's just you're ignoring the reps needed to get to the place where it looks natural. Because for Mitch, it is, but maybe for somebody starting out, it won't be at first. This is like a good chunk of the conversation that I have with people when we do these meta shows, like your podcast about podcasting. And when people say to me, like, oh, like I'm going to do an interview show like Mitch, and I'm like, oh, well, you know, good. I think you can try. And it's not, this isn't ego. This is not me being very Canadian, but people don't know that from the late 80s through over a 
you know, 15 plus years, I interviewed rock stars like multiple times a day, every single day of the week to produce thousands of articles in the music business that I spent hours upon hours going through those recorded conversations on cassette tape and having to type them and transcribe them and hearing me talk over someone or umming and eyeing or not getting them excited about a topic was the most excruciating work experience I ever had. And so even the professionalism of not talking over someone, umming and eyeing, or 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 just even being really prepared for a conversation or figuring out ways to get them into a mood was decades of work before the 700 episodes even started. The fact that I'd done college radio, the fact that I had, you know, all that stuff of years and years, literally two decades of being in media before I even hit record on any form of Skype or whatever technology it is you're using. And it's not to hype myself. It's just that, yes, anybody can do a podcast. It is true. It is very hard to be good at it because the skills are very nuanced. And the ability to carry a conversation, uh, have interesting guests, have a certain level of familiarity, like all these things are things that you don't pick up as a listener, but you feel and you couldn't name them if I asked you to name them. But if you're a professional and you know what you're doing in this world, you sort of know that you need to hit those posts to get a really hot show happening. So, and this is where an earlier version of me would have botched this because I would have tried to get back on track because we were trying to do a superlative section. But I do want to give you one prompt, one superlative, and then I'm going to totally abandon this segment because what you just said was worth keeping in there. So here's the one superlative I think most people need to hear about. What is the thing that you most wish you were good at sooner? Not the thing you would tell your younger self, but we're talking about reps here. We're talking about the 700 episodes plus all the stuff that happened around it and before it that got you to the point where you can do a show like yours. What is the one skill that you wish you started like proactively working on sooner in doing your show? Oof. I don't know. Well, I can give you mine. So I wish I was better at trying to introduce tension during an interview process. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't my... So again, like the, you have to understand my background. Every single day, I would go down to like a very fancy hotel and be lined up with other journalists and be given 20 minutes with you know Metallica or Motley Crue. And everybody's going to go in there and say, talk to me about the new album. Tell me about your upcoming tour. Who produced your new album? And I was like, if I do that or hear that again, I'm going to put a bullet in my head. Like, I'm not going to be able to do this. And so it's very hard to answer because I feel like the things that I do on the show have been like just almost like beaten into me by myself over years. And I wish I could say that I do things I don't want to do on this. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't feel when I'm doing the show, like, ah, I wish I'd gotten like that. I feel like I had done so many reps before I ever hit record that I was so ready for it. Yeah. Is that, yeah. Is that like, I don't want to sound like a jerk. Like I'm always not. learning and I'm up, but when it comes to like techniques, the way I did it was became my sort of way of doing it. And like, I just don't know what I'm looking for as something that I got to faster. I would say maybe, maybe it would be like asking for specific guests earlier on, like, like not waiting for there to be a level of credibility for the show before I felt comfortable asking someone to be a guest on it. But even then, like I was pretty overt early days and no one else is doing this, get on my show. I feel like there is something to be said about, I'm going to try to tease out one thing that struck me about that answer. 
a lot of times, you know, and everyone listening is largely a marketer or they're, they're doing a show because they also have a business behind the show. They're not trying to make the show their business. There's this desire we have to paint things to black and white, to A to B. Like if I get good at this, then this result will happen. If I try this channel or this approach, then this result will be triggered. There's something to be said about I'm going to throw myself at this problem day after day after day after day and get stronger over and over and over again. And I'm going to have faith that good things will happen. In, in the same way that like I have a daily writing practice and I'm not trying to say to myself, well, now I hope that I write my next book in fewer months or whatever. I'm not, I don't have a goal. I have no ulterior motive other than I have faith if I keep putting out my work day after day after day, I'll get better. Good things will happen. Opportunity will come my way. But it starts with that idea that like, I'm just going to do this and good things will happen. I have faith. Does that make yeah, any sense? It makes a lot of sense. And and when you say that, what I would say is not something that I wish I had learned sooner, but like all my blind spots, like I don't check analytics. I have no idea how many downloads I get. Never checked. Um, you know, I don't edit. I don't uh, promote it. Like I don't, if a new platform, like it took me forever to get on Spotify only because like I just didn't, like, oh, I got to go do that. Yeah. Like anything not related to the conversation is like almost a complete blind spot for me. And that's yeah. obviously equals part of audience and self-promotion and promoting the show. So I, I look at it more like, what do I wish I would have done sooner? Maybe the question is, what do I wish I would just do? <laughs> it might be better. <laughs> and that was just the beginning of the list, right? Because all I feel like I do is I hit record and everything else. I cross my fingers and hope that somebody will find. So episode number 700 of your show features you and Seth Godin talking about podcasting. So I mentioned before I hit record, this is a, like the most meta episode of a podcast <laughs> ever built right now. You heard it here because this is a podcast about podcasting. We're deconstructing an episode about podcasting. I, I'm i confused just saying that. <laughs> um, but I told you in an email that that episode was the first podcast episode I'd ever listened to twice. I should actually qualify that. It's the only business show I've ever listened to twice. Number 700 for you. There was two episodes of Radiolab, Colors and Speed. I've listened to that multiple times because it's insane if you haven't heard it. Colors and Speed, two different episodes. But 700 with you and Seth, I've pulled out three of the clips that kind of most represent to me the product of everything you were just talking to us about, like who you are as a host and how you craft this narrative. And then there's also some goodness about Seth and you talking about the industry. All right, so <laughs> let's go to the first clip. But I was looking back to 2005-ish and seeing some of your posts around uh, podcasting, uh, what makes a podcast a podcast, feed burner numbers. And if I fast forward to where we are today, you've really taken on podcasting in a big way. One, you have Akimbo, which is one of the biggest podcasts now in the world. You developed a program called the Podcasting Fellowship. You talk very passionately about it. You spend a lot of time guesting in the space as well. Tell me what was the sort of turn around or, or, or sort of discovery into it that got you so excited? This is a great question. I don't think I've talked about this, so let me try. Uh, podcasting is a terrible business, and that's okay with me. And I think in many ways it makes it better as a creative medium because you have to be delusional to do it for the money. I love the idea of blogs. I love the idea of self-published digital books. I love the idea of podcasts where a non-anonymous human being who has something to contribute to the world can speak up over time 
to people who have signed up with permission to hear from that person, that this peer-to-peer culture building, I think, is humanity in many ways at its best. It's different than top-down. It's different than the media industrial complex because there isn't an industrial part. It's simply media on behalf of making the culture better. And so when I did my first podcast a decade ago, and it was the number one business podcast for a long time because there weren't very many podcasts, I did the whole thing in one weekend. And so by many uh, measures, it wasn't a podcast at all because it wasn't serialized. I was just an artifact of a weekend. But there weren't a lot of people to listen to it. So what has shifted is an explosion in listeners. We're now talking about 25% of the adults in North America have listened to a podcast. That's huge. That's approaching books in terms of reach. And the thing is, it will never, as far as I can figure out, be a good business. And we can talk about that if you want, but I don't care. I just like the fact that you can hear and be heard. The thing that jumped out at me most there was Seth saying, he paused, you could tell he was thinking, and then he said, that's an interesting question. No one's asked me that before, which to your point earlier is something you said you wanted musicians to say, you wanted everybody you talked to to say, but Seth had just done, I think he said a hundred, literally 100 podcasts, like he tracked it, a hundred podcast interviews around his book in the months prior. And yet here's a question he'd never been asked before. So Talk me through how that makes you feel to hear him say that and like how you can possibly come up with something that over 100 interviews, no one has asked. Well, one is you did it when you asked me what's something I would have learned, which I would have learned sooner. I mean, you stump, you stump, you stump me there and I get asked a lot of things, too. So I think what what happens is uh, one is. The, the backstory, I want to see the backstory on this. And then if, if I need you to, to divert me back to this question, please do. Yeah, I will. So Seth has his first book, his, his newer book come out on, on this is marketing. And he has this massive list of all these podcasts he had been on. And I'm not on the list. And I send them a note, like almost insulted. Like, is my show suck? Like, I can't believe that like, I just wasn't even thought of to be in this first strike of podcast. And he, his response, which is, again, I, I happen to know him and love him and he's a good friend, was just like, I'm sort of not doing any shows now. I was like, look, if you do a wave two, it's fine. But like, I didn't say that to him. Like, I can't believe I wasn't part of this first wave. Like, how bad am I, you know? But it was really striking to me. So that's a sidebar to that, which is it doesn't matter where you are in the world. There's always this sort of moment where you feel like like in all this, like what happened? I think what people need to know to get to why it happens like that is that I don't have any questions when I'm interviewing anybody. I have a sheet of paper that has your name on it, like it does right now. Uh, I might write down the books that you've written just to have the titles correct. I might write down, you know, maybe one or two words that just sort of will things that I just don't think I'm worried I might forget, but I don't want to forget. But I really approach each show like I'm sitting down with them for coffee. Like, and I wouldn't crack open a notebook and go, I'm so glad you're meeting me for coffee, Jay. Here's the things I want to ask you. What happens by the end of the conversation is that this piece of white paper is filled with questions and notes and comments. And I rip it out and then I put it in a file or I use it if I'm trying to write up show notes or something like that. So I go in with nothing. All I go in with is a lot of reading of the person's books, blogs, podcasts, uh, articles, whatever I can sort of find my way through. And then I think about themes in particular 
that I'm really curious about. Now with Seth, where it came from was that this is a guy who blogs every single day, doesn't ask, ask for anything. He's a guy that does not allow comments on his blog. He basically has shunned any form of real social media. He's doing a little bit more of it now that he's got sort of some companies behind him that he's trying to promote. And suddenly he's like, podcasting is the new blogging. And I was like, this is a big thing. Like this is a big world. And considering where he is, who he is and where he's from, I was just curious about like, why this? Why now? Like in a world where Facebook and Instagram is bigger or YouTube, why is this the thing? So it, it all comes from a place of innocence. And I think the second layer to that is is that we're both business professionals. I'm not a journalist. I'm not, uh, I mean, I am by trade, but I'm not anymore. I, I've built businesses. I've sold businesses. I've been a part of businesses that have been very successful in between that and after that. So I look at it more like peer to peer. And so I'm trying to get to a conversation point that isn't me learning from the guest. I, I, I look at all, even when, when I talk about my podcasting notes, one of the things I tell them is it's a conversation. I don't have questions. Feel free to come back at me and feel free to jam with me. So Seth knows the rules of the game. He's been on the show multiple times. He knows me as a person. And I think he plays it well. And I don't think I answered your question well, but that's sort of <laughs> where the construct of the ideas come from. So I don't have the answer to that because I didn't plan it. There's this weird pattern I've picked up on and you actually like just discussed why you don't fall victim to it. Let me just try to make this overt for people, which is most people ask questions that they can kind of sort of anticipate the answer, whether because they could just Google it or listen to someone that on the podcast of a competitor or because you're just maybe a little skittish to ask a question that you yourself don't know the answer to. Like, I legitimately didn't know what was something you thought you should have been better at sooner, Mitch, on your show. And that question could break any number of ways. And then I have to have the wherewithal to tack back to the next question or comment or story to make sure that we don't get derailed. But a lot of people I've noticed, they're asking questions where it's like, I could find that as a listener elsewhere. Like, that didn't seem born of genuine curiosity. And what you just said is like, look, I, I know the person, I've consumed a lot of their content over the years and also to prep proactively for one interview. And yeah, this is something I'm just actually wondering in the same way that if you and I got coffee in Montreal or Boston or wherever, if we bump into each other at an event, I'm going to, I'm not going to like sit down and ask you stuff like, Hey, I saw you tweet this thing. Like, what did you mean by that? Like, what's going on? Like, tell me the thing that like, you know, I would just be like, Mitch, I, I don't know. What have you been up to? T talk to me about something I genuinely don't know. What the second, and, go ahead. No, I was going to say, there's a little too much uncertainty for some people to ask that type of question, I guess. I don't know. Well, the second part to what I was going to say is that I have a theme to my show, but it's a personal theme that I don't really share with anybody unless someone asks me. So I'll, I'll often get feedback of, you know, hey, like that was a very direct question or that was a very almost like like questioning whether their thesis is is legitimate or not. And the theme that I work on at a secondary side, which is prevalent in that part of the conversation, is I want the person I'm speaking with to show their work. Like if you can't defend, like if you're Seth Godin and you write every single day on a blog and then you turn around and go, I think podcasting is new blogging, I need you to show that work. You can't just mm -hmm. say that and walk away from it. You can't just say that because it's hot or this and that to me. Because I need to understand that because it's something I grapple with or I struggle with or I'm unsure about or I might feel that way, but but I don't know how to say it. And maybe getting Seth to say it, I can crimp that. You know, I can sort of use that and whether I, I attribute it to him or not, but just go like, yes, I agree with him. And that's how I'm going to 
use it to explain it as well. Mm. And it's because we live in a world where a lot of the content we see is sort of this given, this blurb from this book, this testimonial on the speaker's website, something a speaker says live on stage. And my general reaction is, can they show the work? And I have a general problem. And my general problem is that I, I divide hosts, writers, and speakers into two blocks, those who have done and those who have an opinion. And we have a lot of very popular people in the world of podcasting, speaking, writing, who have an opinion, who are armchair quarterbacks, but they've never actually built a successful business. They've never actually worked for a successful company. They've got a lot of opinions. Now, that doesn't mean it it counts for less or isn't good or isn't right. It just means that I view that group with a much more skepticism, a lot more skepticism, and Mm. I prefer the experience side. So when I see somebody like Seth, he clearly falls on the experience side, can't not, And when you make a statement like that, I have to poke at it because I know he's going to be able to show the work. On the other side, if the person has an opinion and wrote a book about a topic and I'm very direct and they have a hard time defending themselves, what the audience is actually hearing isn't me being provocative. They're hearing someone else unable to defend their work. I think you do that well. Brian Koppelman does that well, actually, in this episode. Yeah, you and Seth talked about Brian Koppelman because he's willing to wade into a little bit more of a tension-filled moment, not to be like, I gotcha, but because that's not, he's also not a journalist, but more to say, we got to really make sense of this here. Like, or I show don't understand work. it. Or, or I genuinely don't understand yeah, it, right. You're saying that like, you know, video is the next thing and I'm saying, I don't show me. And don't just say, well, here's some YouTube stats. It just doesn't work with me. So what's interesting is what we're talking about here, you said the word experience a couple of times. Like, do you have the experience? Seth has been blogging all this time and now he's saying it's podcasting and he's got this experience, show the work. There's a need to bring out specifics. So I want to go to the next clip because that was the theme I got from this forthcoming clip that I'm going to play, which is your ability to get guests to talk about specifics and get out of the generalities and the hand waving and the tweetable pithy moments. So let's, let's just go to the second clip. I'm going to come back to it. I want to talk a bit about Akimbo and how you think about the show because it's a tremendous success. And I think people always look to what is the Seth Godin formula. And so I'm going to ask this question about how you think about your show, Akimbo. What kind of content do you look for? I think my formula is a combination of two things. One, I want to teach people how to look at something differently. So I have an upcoming one about statistics and about false correlation. But I know that I can't just say, hey, think about it this way. So instead, what I need to do is have a way into it in which I can talk about something that is out of whack, incoherent, surprising and help it fit together. So uh, the podcast I'm working on right now, for example, is about belief. And once I started thinking about belief, I started thinking about unicorns. And once I started thinking about unicorns, I was like, well, who invented the unicorn? And how long did it take people to stop believing in unicorns? And it turns out it's a pretty good story. And so I can use that story to make a point about the things we choose to believe in. To me, that's gripping tape. I mean, that's, you know, there's not like some incredible groundbreaking, earth shattering stuff in there, but you can't not listen actively, whether you're walking the dog or driving to work. And that's what I think 
the sequence of events explained by a person on a microphone or the specifics bring out. It's this gripping feeling. And so, and by the way, I've never heard Seth Godin really dive into the specifics of his own work like that. So talk me through the importance of getting moments like that from your guests and, you know, how you got Seth to, to arrive at that, that space where he can give you that stuff. So here's what happens to me. It's interesting how people are different and how they approach and think about something. So when I was listening to that clip back, and I haven't heard it since he said it live, I was like, I don't understand how he made the connection between belief and unicorns. I don't understand how he made the connection between unicorns and who invented the unicorn. Like I would have never thought of that. So wait, can I just interrupt you, Mitch? Because the thing you're saying you were wondering is literally, and I cut it out, but it's literally your follow-up question from back in that interview. So like you you were acting exactly the same as you did back then. (laughs) (laughs) Is that good or bad? (laughs) It's great. No, because because you follow in your nose, right? You're like Toucan Sam here. You're just like, can you tell me how the word, this is your follow-up. Can you tell me how the word belief came to be a topic (laughs) that you felt could sustain a whole episode? And he talks about, well, he got a series of emails from a medical student who was talking about this superstitious mumbo jumbo and how they were going to apply that in their medicine. And he's like, better to just give them a, an episode of content instead of try to engage back and forth over email. And he's like, this is the thing that Seth said. It's one thing to say, I'm just paddling my canoe around believing in unicorns. It's another thing to say, I'm training to be a doctor, and I believe this mumbo-jumbo law of attraction will help me heal people. (laughs) So you literally were thinking just now the exact same way you, the host back then, was thinking. Well, there you go. Like, that's that's how, (laughs) like, my my brain operates in a way where I'm also, like, now thinking... Like if I was Jay, what would I have asked me then? Like how would I have handled that situation? <laughs> like so, but that answers your question, right? Like that's why it's compelling, and that's why we want to hear more, and that's why maybe we've never heard it that way, and there's a path that goes down because the only thing interesting that somebody says is something that sparks in your brain a million more questions. Seth, and I think after 700 plus episodes, the reason you you also hone in on an episode like that is because it's the guest. That's what Seth is capable of doing. A lot of guests give you patter. A lot of guests give you the same old, same old. And maybe Seth will do the same old, same old if you ask him the same old, same old. So there's this sort of dance that's happening there that you know, I, I find inspiring, like listening to it, not because it's my show or it's up, but I'm like, oh, that's so good. Like, I should think about that when I like having heard that again, the second or third time, I'm like, oh, like I should think more like that. I should think more belief, unicorn, who invented unicorns? Because I don't necessarily think I think like that. And I think when people are listening to that, I'm hoping they're thinking the same thing or they're solving problems in their brain that they had at work that that connection between belief unicorn who invented unicorns would help. So that to me, when you're talking about like business content and value, isn't that. It's that back and forth and that is tension. And that's probably what Brian Koppelman would would agree is tension in this type of format. So that's the answer to the question is, Mm. are, are you sparking as the person talks? If they're not, you're just sort of like, oh, okay, fine, good. I think that sums it up best when I said earlier, like top of the show here, that so many people just kind of mail it in is the wrong word because they probably do what they can with the resources they're given and the skills that they currently have. It's not like they have malintent, but they're not sparking. They're just sort of, here's a question, answer. Here's a question, answer. And you know, I think it's hard too. The, the other thing I want to ask you about that clip is, you do get some guests and Seth Godin could be one of them where they have such great sound bites or they've been on so many shows or you're maybe even intimidated a little bit by them. 
where you kind of let them off the hook. And so they generalize. So how do you get a guest who, like you said, there's that dance, they're starting to tack to the left a little bit too much. How do you gently nudge them right? Like, how do you get the specifics from a guest that doesn't actually want to give them? Yeah, I have the prototype of the person who does that. And his name is Gene Simmons from KISS. And this is a person who, I grew, growing up in, in the 70s and 80s, I was a huge fan of. I was a rocker, so I loved the band even more. Had a lot of the collectibles. Managed to interview him a lot of times over the years. And then you're following along and seeing the other interviews. This is before the days of YouTube. And you know, Gene had a line with me where I was talking about merchandising versus being artists. You know, they have Kiss coffins and toilet paper and anything you can imagine they could put the Kiss logo on. They did. And Gene was sort of the, 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 the lead sort of henchman in that business. And Gene said to me at one point, I'm pissed at a nickel because it's not a dime. And I thought that's like maybe one <laughs> of the greatest one-liners I'd ever heard about someone's like love of business and and like making money and and he you know gene delivers it in the way if you know the character gene simmons he delivers it and it's come to the point now where i don't know if he told me that in any of those interviews he might have told it to someone else or he might have told it a million times and i got there a lot with gene i'd be reading interviews and i'd ask him a question and he'd sort of go and like move it back to that answer that he has. That's either some sort of joke about, you know, I probably slept with your sister and your mother too, or whatever stupidity was, his shtick was back then. And the only thing that, the only weapon that I have at that moment is you, you have to be able to let it breathe and sit a little bit, which can be a bit uncomfortable, not too long. And I would often say something like, what else? Or I get that, but can you talk more about this? you're sort of edging them along that you want something else. And maybe how they're reacting is, I've, I, they know that I've used this before, I need to be quicker or better here. The second thing or third thing that I would do in that situation is I might actually redirect it. And the way that I find I redirect it best is because I'm creating the notes and questions as I go based off of the flow of the conversation, it's almost like a comedian where I'll do a callback. So recently I was interviewing this amazing bass player who played in the new power generation, which is Prince's backing band. And she played bass in this band until he died. So basically from like for like about seven or eight years until he unfortunately died. And we talked a lot about Prince and then a lot about her new solo album. And I felt like she was sort of going into that space of responding the way she would to any journalist about a question. And so I went back to something about Prince or something from that era and connecting those two made her go in a different direction. So I am sort of overtly listening to the conversation and thinking about creative ways to get something more or different out of them all the time. And you even hinted that what I love when you listen to a lot of interviewers that have been doing it for a while, whether it's you or, you know, my favorite sports columnist, Bill Simmons, mm -hmm. although he's mostly a podcaster now, Kara Swisher in tech. Yeah, there's not like the the narrative style. Like you can tell there's not a lot of post-production, but you can hear them leak out that they have a plan, whether the plan is on a notebook on the fly like you or maybe yeah. they had it up front. I don't know. But every so often they'll say things like oh, we'll cover that in the next section, but walk me through this, like go deeper here. Or what you did in this clip, if people paid attention was, you said, I'll come back to it. In other words, you're like, I'm going to revisit the same question. And I, I think a lot of people don't realize like great interviewers can and do ask the same question in several ways to try and dig a little deeper. And you know, I know you and Seth have good rapport because you have a relationship, but you did kind of break them down a little bit 
by asking the same question several ways <laughs> until he was like, Mitch, I'm in on the joke here. Like, I know you want me to share tactics. Fine. Here's here's some tactics. Here's some process. <laughs> right. Or what I do is I I will uh at Seth in particular, because I know he hates it, I'll say things like I know when you're talking about writing, you don't like to talk about the type of pencils you use or notebooks you use or software you use, but, and then he'll start laughing, but I think that that (laughs) does lower, I think it gets to the same point where that person does it. The interesting thing about like Kara or even myself, when I say, we'll get back to that, I want to talk about that later, I think also speaks to the media uh, of podcasting. You can't. Like, I don't even know how long you and I are recording for, and I can go as long as you want. And you could either use this all or chop it or cut it. But the truth is that the reason I don't cut and my shows tend to be long format conversation is because I will go back. I will, now, I'll be respectful of someone's time. If they're like, I only have an hour, 45 minutes, fine. But I am always working in this place of we're not going to leave until this thing is wrestled to the mat. Like, we're going to the mat today. We're going. Right. Uh, whether you want to go or not, we're going. And I have to be able to feel satiated when I get off. And when I'm not satiated, when, when it's finished, I will often say to the person, I hope you know, you'll come back and we can keep going or do this again. Because genuinely, when I look at my, my notes that are done as we go, I have a lot of other areas I want to color. I'm going to try to paint this picture for people because your description is making me think of this, almost like this graph we can draw. Picture this like horizontal axis labeled, maybe let's say tension. Where on the left side of that axis is bored. The guest is bored. There's no tension. On the far right, the guest is afraid or maybe back on their heels or they feel attacked. But in the middle, I would say it's mindful. Like really good answers and the specifics that Seth Godin gave or one of those answers, they come when the guest is actually mindful. Where it's like, huh, I've never been asked that. Or okay, let's go deeper here. Like if they're bored, you get jargon. On the right side, if they're afraid, you also get jargon or generalities. So you can almost draw this like parabola that kind of goes up to the middle or bell curve, I guess is the word. Where up in the middle, they're like super mindful and they're giving great content. And then on the extremes, you're back at the zeros because it's like, I'm flat. I'm like, I want to give you something jargony because you asked me a boring question on the left side or on the right side, it's too much tension. You're like too gotcha, too pushy. And I'm also going to default to the safe answer. But you get to the sweet spot in this clip, Mitch, where it's like, I'm asking you a pretty piercing question. There's a back and forth, like you said, which is tension. And that's like the sweet spot where the guest is comfortable enough to give really thoughtful answers, but not so uncomfortable that they're retreating to the safe space. They're and I don't know moment. if any of that made. Yeah, they're in no, the they're moment. In the moment. I- and, exactly. And, and, you know, I don't know what your proclivity is with music or instruments or playing music, but I often say that speakers are like this. And I've told this story and I'll tell it again because it's a good story because I think it goes for podcast hosts too, which is is there's three types of speakers and they're rel- relative to music. In music, you have classical music, which is like I have this sheet of music and I will play the exact tempo and the exact notes as it is given to me on the sheet of music. Then you have rock and roll, which is like, I, I know of the music. There is a sheet music for it. There's a verse, chorus, verse, bridge, whatever. But we might jam if things are going well. And at that point, we're going to have to look at each other and figure out it's a bit dangerous. Then on the third one is free improv. You know, what people don't realize when they see jazz, because they can't tell if it's great or not, is that improv jazz, they don't know. Someone starts playing and everyone's following along. And sometimes... It's amazing. And sometimes it's a complete car wreck and it just doesn't work. I tend to feel that the best speakers, and I think I would lump myself into into that category as a podcaster too, is rock and roll. 
It's not sheet music. We sort of know the structure and what it's going to be, but there's going to be a lot of jamming. And it's not free form because I don't want it to, I don't want that uncertainty. I want some control mechanisms in there. And I don't want classical because it's just two, here's question one, here's question two, here's question three. What you know about music when you go see a great live show or hear something transformative as a as as a, something you listen to on Apple Music or Spotify, is that usually those are in the moments. Like if you actually break it down and speak to the artist and producer, they'll say that was this thing that just happened in the studio. Like somebody sang something and this other line came here and then the guitar came in the drum. And it's like that live. It's like, why? Why is a band that's doing the same set list every single night in a different city has some nights where they get off stage and they're like, that was unbelievable. And some nights where they feel like that was the worst show of their lives. And it's it's because of that being in the moment. And it's such a precious thing that I would I would love for you to sit here and say, oh, um, yeah, that happens all the time. But the truth is, I don't know. And so if you can identify it as being an in-the-moment moment, Jay, that's great. It's harder for me as the producer and person who's doing the show. But I can definitely tell you as the host, when my guest is in the moment, I can feel it. And I'm able to ride that wave with them. The problem with the vast majority of shows that I hear is they kill the wave. Oh, next question. Or they're just trying to rattle through their own agenda. And I'm like, yeah, that's not where the magic lies. The magic lies in the moment. I think you're totally right. Yeah, to a certain extent. First of all, that was unbelievable. And I totally agree with that. And to a certain extent, this is why a lot of business content to me falls flat. And a type I'd like to create is something you can get lost in to the degree that you don't have a notebook out. You're not like, cool, I have a job to do later after I watch this speaker or after I listen to this show. So here's my notebook and I'm jotting down the steps I need to take that Mitch is teaching me. I think to a certain degree that takes you out of your flow. It takes you out of the moment because you're so focused on documenting the steps and thinking about the next task at hand, even though, yes, there's value in that. I think there's far more value and it's far rarer, to your point, where you can create a podcast about podcasting like this one, I hope, where you just get lost in it and you absorb it and it fades into the background and then you go back to your day and it somehow changed you for the better. Yes, you didn't write down steps, but it's still something where you just, it absorbs into you because of that flow, because of that mindfulness. And now you go back to your work and you don't have a notebook to say, here are the steps I learned from Jay and Mitch, but you approach that task in a far better way. Yeah, and I think the challenge with it is that it, it feels that way when you're here and now, like I feel very present in this conversation. I don't have anything open and I'm just sort of here to be here with you and think about things differently. But that required years and years of confidence and years and years of training and all sorts of different skills from performing magic as a child to collecting comic books to getting up in front of large audiences and speaking to being a journalist and being nervous about being the fifth or sixth or last person in the room with, you know, whoever. <laughs> and that is, it's a reps. It's, it's getting comfortable. It's, it's having a bit of direction. It's knowing when you go in, I sort of know what this product looks like for it to be decent. <laughs> This is going to sound really flippant, but I like to think that people who consider themselves creative, they're that way because at some point when they were young, they made something and somebody told them they were creative. And then it happened again and again and again. And so now they're willing to put in the reps. And so many people either don't have that parenting or leadership around them or schooling or education, or they, they've been told the opposite. Sit in a row, obey. I could basically run back a lot of the things that Seth Godin said on your podcast about education, right? Born yeah. in the industrial era, all that stuff that, that he, I think, rightly so believes and rails against. And so I think to be willing to put in the reps, it kind of starts with this luck of the draw that some people have been told, 
hey, you're really good at that. You should keep going. Yeah. And some people have not. But I completely agree. It's it's about the reps. And um, far be it from me to tell somebody that they're not creative because I don't know what their journey's been like. I mean, it's a real thing. Like I ta- I think I've written about it in my book, but I had an art teacher and art in my school was considered the uh, period in high school where you take a break from the real life and you do art, right? It wasn't like a serious thing. And I remember the teacher said to me, Alana Kuska, and she said to me, hey, you know, Mitch, you're really creative. You should consider like doing something with that, like a career. In- and I I looked at her like she was from another planet. I had no idea what she was talking about. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know that that, that is a thing. I, you know, I was brought up in, in a school that that sort of thing, you know, there wasn't a music program. There wasn't really, all that stuff was like considered the, like the break, you know, another recess. There was, it wasn't taken seriously. And, and you're right. It often takes like one or two of those triggers. And look, having a guest like Seth Godin on the show, also inspires and that's the challenge and beauty of having somebody like seth on the show where it's nice to say oh your peers are having a conversation and nah, 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 i'm a fanboy and i've read everything he's written 10 times and i'll buy anything he sells and so i'm also in in a predicament with him and many of my guests where i'm also a fan and i'm learning as i go and i'm asking them it's basically i always say it's it's the biggest secret it's like I, I got to speak to the person who I really admire and ask them or, or somebody who's in an industry that I don't I need to learn about. And, and the secret is that like I published it, but it's the, the real I'm just doing it for it's selfish. You know, the secret <laughs> is it's selfish. I'm trying to learn. And so when someone's like, hey, I really love that show. I'm like, that's great, but not as much as I do. Not from an ego like it's my show, but I took two to 15 pages of notes during that show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what it is. Like, I don't have questions. I took two to 15 pages of notes. That's it. Right now, I'm feeling very inspired and motivated and moved by everything we're talking about. And why don't we ruin that? We should go to the third clip. Okay, go. <laughs> okay, so this is the final clip. It is a little bit longer, but I think it shows your ability to get to a deeper place because there's a couple follow-ups I wanted to make sure listeners hear. So it's a three-minute clip. So let me just play it in full. Talk to me about marketing your show, self-promotion, level of comfort doing this, how you do it. People struggle with that. It's nice to have a show. It's very hard to get people to care. Okay. Because I have to, that's not the way I use marketing as a verb. I don't do advertising. Sorry. Advertising. Right. I don't do any advertising or promotion of my podcast. Zero. I don't uh, know how many people listen to my podcast. I don't look at the statistics for my podcast and I have never set out to promote my podcast. But you do. I mean, I've seen in your blog, you'll say, you know, there's, or this relates to a story in Akimbo or. Right. But that's not me promoting my podcast. That's me saying I did something relevant to this other thing you and I are talking about. (laughs) Right. Right. I don't view this as. I need to get people to listen to the Thanksgiving episode of my podcast. I really don't. What I view it as is, wait, we're having a conversation about this. And why didn't you tell me you were also talking about it over there? And so I know all the things I could do to get more people to listen to my podcast. And I don't do those things. That's what I meant. Okay. But you're Seth F. and Godin. So you're... You're you're somewhat absolved of that. You're still giving a course called the Podcasting Fellowship that must involve people with how to create a ruckus enough that people care about listening. Right. Which is real marketing. So what we say (laughs) is you can get a hundred people to listen to your podcast. If you can't get a hundred people to listen to your podcast, you need to get out more. You can get a hundred people to listen to your podcast. 
Now the question is this. Can you make a podcast that after the 100 people listen to it, they will tell someone else? Because if you can, you are done. And if you can't, you need to start over. And is that enough for people to understand? Because the, I, I hear you and you know I prescribe to it. This is my the way I live. I mean, it, it's, it's almost religious with me and how I think about what I'm willing to do in relation to how you do it and then do a, a sort of little comparison of would Seth do this. But most people still publish it and their fingers start itching. Like I should scream about this on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and, and repost this. And then five times a week, let people know different reasons why this is the where to go. And I think certain people will tell you that that is exactly what you have to do to build an audience. Are you? That's what they will tell you. But here's the thing. <laughs> they keep saying, I don't have to do it because I'm Seth Godin. Well, how did I become Seth Godin? I became Seth Godin by not doing it. Right? That there's this this myth that if you just hype and hustle and hustle and hustle, then one day you'll become the kind of person that doesn't have to hype and hustle. Well, why don't you just start by becoming the kind of person that doesn't have to hype and hustle and you can skip the whole hype and hustle part. And then he finishes that thought as you think he would. Unbelievable sequence for me as a host, me as a listener. One of the things I'm struck by is you had three follow-ups. Each of them had essentially the same thrust you didn't try to say okay but now go over here but now go over here it was the same through line you're same you're driving towards the same need to understand one thing three follow-ups the first two started with the word but and the second said and i'm with you but <laughs> what are your reactions to that yeah i mean again like i hadn't heard this since we had the conversation live and it's clear when i hear that that i wasn't buying what he was selling you know <laughs> I just wasn't buying it. I'm like, I don't look at my stats, which again, I hadn't, I didn't realize that he had said that. And I'd said that earlier in this show and it's totally true. So there are certain things where I'm, I'm all in, like all the chips are on the table. Seth Godin doesn't look at his stats. He's just thinking about the product of the quality. And if I can have a bit of that sort of pixie dust I'll, or secret sauce, I'll take it and run with it. I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking now, like how often do I see a blog post now where he'll revert back to an old MBA thing or whatever? And I get what he's saying. And it's very, very true and very profound. And if I think about his work as, as we are right now, like what are we doing? We're basically doing what he says, right? Like it's so good. You and I are now doing a show to tell other people about how good it is. It's exactly correct. And I did, you know, I laughed a lot when he said, uh, I, I muted my mic, but he said, you know, I became Seth Godin by not doing it. I thought that was a really sort of funny thing that made me stop and think, is that true? Like when permission marketing came out, is, is that true? When Purple Cow hit, is that true? And when Lynchpin came out, is that true? And I think it is. I, th I think it is true. And I, in my brain, I'm trying to deconstruct still like again i have four more follow-ups that i'd like to poke because what happened as as i think you can tell in that segment is the more i went but or i agree and um he gave more information there i mean there's a lot more information coming at us there's a lot of lessons up until the last breath that he breathed in his last sentence there. <laughs> so i feel what you're saying like i'm buying what you're saying jay like there's some stuff in here we haven't heard or, or him get into so i, I am buying that and I'm hearing, as I hear it now as a consumer, I'm like, yeah, yeah, that, that's true. But I felt like if I just, if I had just, if he said, look, I don't self-promote 
and we just hard stop there. And it's okay. I have another question. I feel like I'd be letting myself down. And I think that that's really the buts and the ends or, or what about, I, I wasn't satiated. There wasn't enough for me to feel like either he's, he's shown his work or he hasn't shown his work. So I think we got there. Yeah. And, and I don't know that it 100% gave me the, the answer I wanted maybe. Uh, so there might be more there, but I believe it. And I think that I'm okay with believing it, especially if I can really tell the other person really believes it. That's good. It speaks to a willingness that you have that I think a lot of hosts should adopt to kind of poke down different avenues. Like, okay, this episode, every episode's a journey to understand something or multiple things. And we can kind of vaguely see the mountain peak in the distance. But the interview is this process of hacking through the jungle. And I'm going to hack to the left here with you, Mitch. And okay, that actually proved to be a dead end. No big deal. Or I'm going to hack to the right. and I'm making a little more progress, but I really got to take another few swings to take a few more steps here. And I got more fired up the more you followed up and the more Seth was willing to just like let his hair down and say, look, how did I become Seth Godin? Because I didn't do that stuff. And we're sold this myth that you can eventually stop hyping and huckstering or being a huckster. And but in the meantime, you got to be like, look, no, that why don't you start that way? And it was like that. There's the truth, like whether or not there's more meat. Yeah, but that's the thing. Like, I'm still sitting here going, do you believe that? Like, and I, I think about like my show. And I'm like, guys, yes, many years, many episodes. And I'm like, I got to keep hacking. Like, I, I just, I, I watch other people lap me in terms of popularity and whatever that definition means by doing the things he's saying not to do. And that's the tension. That's the tension there. Because he can say that all he wants, but I see sponsored posts for, you know, so-and-so's got Brene Brown on their show and this person is doing this and that they're, they're bumping it up and they're doing this and they're tweeting about it and they're capturing a part of it and doing an image with the audio file over it and the little bouncy sound waves going. And I'm like, wow, I'm not doing any of this. And they're like, they're, you know, <laughs> so I, so I, I yeah. believe him deeply, but I also see the other side that doesn't contradict him, but does it another way. And I think that it's that's, so interesting. That's there's so much friction in that. Like even right now, right. I'm still like, I believe him. Like there's nothing he said there where I'm like, I don't know, Seth. You know, I think you sort of copped out of me there. I believe him. I just on the other side go, well, what if I did do those other things that Seth doesn't do? Like what would happen? Because <laughs> and that's that's I guess the that's to me part of that tension is you want to sort of go through the thing and go, but you are Seth Godin. Don't say that. You know, <laughs> how dare you? <laughs> I, I felt that every follow-up you had, it was kind of in lockstep with how I was thinking. It's like, wait a second. I've seen him actually promote his show on Instagram or the PS little links in his blog posts to yeah, yeah, the show. Yeah. I was like, Mitch, this is exactly what I would have asked. And then the same thing when you said, okay, yes, but you're Seth freaking Godin. You can announce <laughs> that you're doing something and there's 7,000 people signing up right away at minimum, right? Like it's insane. And I'm with you that I want to go deeper there. I think there are times where you got to cut bait, right? It's almost like I could have kept harping on that, but there wasn't anything else that he would have admit willingly admitted unless you make the whole episode about that concept. And that to me, that still eludes me. Well, yeah, but, you know, there's a couple things there. And that's, that is putting back on your journalist hat or your host hat, which is, you don't want them to be frustrated. You don't want your guests to be frustrated, Seth or anyone else. You want them to be right. frustrated right. that either they're not getting it or they're not buying it or they're trying to do a gotcha on me. And on the other extreme, you know, I've seen Seth be very gracious to do people's shows. And ultimately, he's there saying, can you just quiet down for a second or let me just explain this again? And that to me is like, oh, snap. But I'm listening to that as a host going, I never want to be there. I never want to be in a place where a very sophisticated and experienced professional is almost mentoring me live about how to host. 
It, it's not, it's yes. not flattering. It doesn't look good. And I empathize with him because of how much effort he puts in it or how much space, like he gives people, like he doesn't need to be on, on all the shows he goes on. He does it because he's gracious and he, he, you know, yes, it helps him, but it also helps the host. I mean, how many times do you get invited to do a show? And after it's just this litany of things you could do to share the show. I'm like, it's your audience. What are you making me share? You know, like it, it, it's a weird thing. Yeah. And so that to me speaks a lot to that, that last clip and conversation, which is I don't want the person to feel gotcha or that right. they're getting frustrated. And on the other side, I don't want to be in a place where they're eye rolling before they even get a chance to breathe. Right. And that could come from you're pushing too hard on one thing or, you know, here's the episode. Here's a million ways to share it. Or even beforehand, I've gotten some requests because I'm fortunate to have appeared on on several shows and be a guest and all that stuff. And it's like, hey, what do you want to talk about? We'll talk about anything. It's like, well, what do you want to talk about? Your listeners. How do I serve? Tell me. Right. Like you lead. I'll follow. I'll, I'll give my my best attempt at molding the answers to who I know you're you're talking to here. But there's there is this mentality of like kind of using the person a little bit too much. And I think you're being kind. I would take a step further that often when people have a guest like Seth Godin, what they're really trying to do is make the show about them, not Seth. And they're trying to demonstrate that they're either as smart or smarter than Seth. (laughs) And And by the way, that is a genre of shows right now where the host is in, in reality, that smart. And it's an interesting format for me. Like I said, I don't do that. It's not my show. But that is a really, like, I'm fascinated. If you go look at some of the top podcasts in the world, the host is genuinely the smartest person in the room. And I question those shows all the time. And I question the people who love them and follow them because it's almost this cult-ish type thing. And I'm not saying that you should be dumber than than the guest. I'm not saying <laughs> you should be. But I think when if the premise of the show is to demonstrate to the audience how smart you are and that you can go toe-to-toe with them, that's not a great show to me either. No, I agree. I I would never get a tattoo, but yet I have a favorite tattoo. And the favorite tattoo is a little saying that my storytelling idol had, I think, on his leg, Anthony Bourdain. Mm -hmm. He had a tattoo that said, I am certain of nothing. (laughs) So it's when you walk into an interview, a discussion, an experience, you know, it's kind of the willingness to set aside biases or to say, hey, I have this bias. I have this understanding. Seth, help me understand this better. Instead of say, let me outfox you or let me like press upon you and therefore the listener how great I am. Like that to me is just, that's the antithesis of that tattoo. But there's a lot of subtlety in that, right? Because the shows that I'm talking about don't do that. It's the branding of the individual that's doing. They're not, they're, it's not overt. It's implicit mm. that I'm super, super smart. And you're listening to this because you want to see me be that smart with this person or at least at the end be able to do the high fives that you see i did that and so i've seen shows like huh. that where smart guest people like seth godin will almost do the whole simmer down now to the guest <laughs> and i think it really does it deflates it yeah. just doesn't give you the the uh, the output you're looking for and i think at the end of the show what you really want is people to feel like okay I really learned something, not from Mitch and not from the guests and not from Jay, but I learned something that's going to make me better at work or think differently about something I've been thinking about or make me see a certain thing that's happening out in the world in a different way. If that happens by listening to two people have a conversation, that is a huge win. And if we're saying like, what's the path or what's the sort of red thread between the three clips with Seth, I think it would be that, that the person listening actually wins. That that's what we want. 
Thanks to Mitch Joel. You can find his podcast anywhere you listen. Check out Six Pixels of Separation. Thanks to our sponsor, Contently. Be sure to check out their content strategy course for the creatively driven marketer covering end-to-end strategy, things that you probably maybe see written about in blog posts, but you've never seen packaged this way because it's both hilarious and rather insightful. That's contently.com slash three clips. Support one of the best teams in the business, I think, in Contently and support our show. Contently.com slash three clips. A reminder that you can check out our free newsletter, MSR Monthly, where you'll get insights just like today's episode, but these insights are found nowhere else but the newsletter. And we send it out every month on the last Friday. We have subscribers from Amazon Prime Video, the BBC, the New York Times, MailChimp, Zendesk, and thousands more brands, big and small. Subscribe at marketingshowrunners.com or check your show notes for the link. All our subscribers believe what I believe. I'm Jay Akunzo, and I believe great marketing isn't about who arrives. It's about who stays. So thanks for staying with me, and I'll talk to you next Monday in a brand new episode. See ya. Here is this week's recommended read from the Marketing Showrunners blog. It's called The Mentality Change Marketers Must Make to Measure Their Shows and the Metrics to Do It. In this post, I I wrote this essay after really thinking through why we struggle so much to prove the value of our content, of our shows in particular. And I propose one mental shift that we can all make to actually measure those those shows and and two metrics that we can use or at least start to develop internally to prove the value. We're not just looking at the total number of things that we do or the total number of people who come our way. We're looking at the value of all this work to our brands. So If we find the value to our brands, we can then invest in growing the right stuff instead of just doing more stuff or arguing based on opinion. Anyways, this is an entirely new way to measure podcasts, but I think it might be the best way for marketers. That's the article, The Mentality Change Marketers Must Make to Measure Their Shows and the Metrics to Do It. Check your show notes at the very bottom for a link or search the blog at marketingshowrunners.com.